Well, it's with joy that I invite you to turn with me again to the book of Hebrews as we continue our journey through this wonderful book together. Hebrews chapter 1. This week I was reminded of the joyous process that I went through in choosing my wife's engagement ring uh, some 16 years ago now. That whole process was so much fun for me, of course, because at the end of it I knew I was going to get to ask Rebecca to marry me. I had worked hard to save the money. I had done what I could to ask questions without giving myself away to find out what kind of ring that she would like. And there was a local jeweler in my hometown that I, I met with to discuss exactly what the ring should be like. But I realized very early on in that process that in order for me to choose the right ring for my bride-to-be, I was first going to need an education. Because at the time, I had really no real understanding or knowledge about diamonds. I knew, of course, that diamonds were valuable because everyone knows that. But as far as why one diamond should be valued more than another, I could not have explained it. And so before I actually chose the diamonds that would go into my wife's engagement ring, the jeweler laid out before me a series of diamonds and gave me a magnifying glass to look through, and he would explain to me why one diamond was valued over another. He explained to me things like the cut of the diamond, the color of the diamond, how to identify impurities within each diamond, so that by the time I chose the diamonds for my wife's ring, I understood now that they weren't just valuable because they were diamonds, but because of very specific properties within those diamonds. I was able to distinguish them between other diamonds and explain why they were more or less valuable. Sometimes I wonder if our understanding and appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ is similar to my experience in those early years with diamonds. If you're a Christian this morning, then obviously you know the Lord Jesus Christ is precious. He's worthy. He's valuable. He's worthy of our adoration and our worship and obedience. But I wonder if we understand the intricacies of exactly what qualities he possesses that makes him so much more valuable than any other person and any other being in the universe. Why does Jesus so clearly and easily overshadow the value of any other person, ideology, or object? You see, we can't allow ourselves to be satisfied with just a surface-level understanding of why the Lord Jesus Christ is so worthy. We must pick up the magnifying glass and look at the person of Christ and inspect Christ and his character and come to understand in a deeper way exactly what aspects of his character make him so worthy. And today, as we turn our attention back to the book of Hebrews, that's exactly what we will begin to do. As we look at certain key qualities or characteristics of who Jesus is that indeed make him superior to all others. Remember, that is the theme of the book of Hebrews that we'll come back to over and over again, that Jesus Christ is superior. But before we move on in our text from last week, I just want to read Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, to give us the context, and then we'll quickly review what we looked at last week before diving into our material today. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us 
in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now last week we began to unpack this theme that we'll look at again today, and that is that God's final and complete revelation has been given through his exalted son. We have God's complete and final revelation in the Son. And as we began to unpack this last week in this theme of the superiority of Christ, we saw that the author begins by explaining that Jesus is superior to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And we looked at the fact that God's revelation has come to us in two stages. Stage number one was God's initial revelation that we looked at in the beginning verses. In the years prior to the coming of Messiah, God revealed himself by speaking to his people through the prophets. And we saw that God clearly testified to Moses as a prophet, and then through Moses gave the criteria by which all true prophets could then be recognized. Let me give those criteria to you again. The two criteria in Deuteronomy for true prophets, first of all, was that they must not contradict previous revelation. We see that in Deuteronomy 13. And then secondly, their prophecy must come true, as we saw in Deuteronomy 18. And because these prophets were verified prophets of God, the people knew that they were speaking on God's behalf. They were held in high esteem, as they should be, even today. But the author wants us to understand that another messenger has come that is superior to every prophet of God before him. That brings us to stage two, God's final revelation. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. Now, we began to introduce that idea last week, but there's so much more for us to say here. Obviously, just by the arrangement of the words in verses 1 and 2, we can see that he is making a distinction between the prophets and the son. And he's obviously highlighting the fact that he is arguing that the son is superior to these Old Testament prophets. In the son, the father has spoken uniquely. Therefore, the revelation given through the son is the crown jewel of God's revelation, his final and complete revelation. But it does bring up a question that we weren't able to answer last week, and that is, how exactly has God spoken through his son? Just briefly, I want to describe to you in the same way that we did about the Old Testament prophets, exactly how God has spoken to us through the son. As I mentioned last week, Jesus, as the incarnate son of God, not only spoke God's revelation with his words, but displayed it in his person. The entirety of Jesus' life, ministry, and teaching contained revelation. But while Jesus, in his divinity, inspired all of Scripture, in his humanity, he never wrote a single book of the Bible. That is, Jesus personally, in his humanity, never took up a pen and put it to paper to write down any of the New Testament. 
So it brings up a question. Is this revelation that the author of Hebrews is talking about, is it only unique to the people that saw the actual ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we sort of cut out of the deal? When he's spoken through his son, did we have to be there in order to receive that revelation? The answer, of course, is a resounding no. We have the revelation of God through both the prophets and the Son contained for us on the pages of Scripture. In fact, even though I showed you last week that we have good reason to to believe that the Old Testament Scriptures are from God because of Moses and the other verified prophets, there's actually an even stronger argument that we could put forward for the validity of these truths. Jesus himself validated the Old Testament scriptures and then pre-authenticated the New Testament scriptures by choosing the men who would write it. Let me say that again. Jesus validated the Old Testament scriptures and then pre-authenticated, it's a word I'm taking from my mentor Tom Pennington, pre-authenticated the New Testament scriptures by choosing the men who would write it. How did Jesus validate the Old Testament? Let me show you this. In Matthew 5, uh, beginning of verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Understand that with these words, and we could go to other places as well, but with these words, Jesus validates the truthfulness and the lasting permanence of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, his language is very specific there. He says, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass. That, that is, that, that's even less than a letter. That is every pen stroke of the author's hand writing down the Old Testament is valid as from God and will not pass away. That phrase, the law and the prophets, is a common way in the scriptures to refer to the entirety of the Old Testament. The law being the first five books of Moses and the prophets then containing the rest of the Old Testament. So we can have confidence that every letter and even stroke of the pen that makes up the Old Testament is the revelation of God because Jesus himself said so. He affirmed it. But in addition to that, we move to the New Testament, and we see that Jesus also affirmed the New Testament by pre-authenticating those who would write it. How did he do this? I'm just going to look at two passages that come to us from the Upper Room Discourse. This is Jesus' last moments with his disciples before his ultimate arrest and crucifixion. In John 14, verse 25, he says, These things I've spoken to you, speaking specifically to the eleven here, While abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Two chapters later, he says something similar, John 16, beginning in verse 12. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whoever, whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. 
All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Here, Jesus is promising his chosen apostles that after he leaves, he will send the Holy Spirit so that in the Holy Spirit, Jesus will no longer just be with his disciples, but in them. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, particularly in this case to those 11 disciples, is that he will teach them all things and bring to remembrance the things that Jesus taught them when he was with them. It would then be their responsibility to teach those things verbally, but also to write them down in the New Testament as the verified witnesses of Christ, those whom Jesus himself appointed. Now, here's my point in explaining this. It's for us to understand that when the author of Hebrews says that in these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, that that revelation was not limited only to those who saw and heard him, but we are beneficiaries of that because it's been written down for us in the New Testament. We still have that revelation. And we can have unwavering confidence that the Bible, both Old and New Testament, contains the very words of God because Jesus Christ himself affirmed it. Listen, if you believe by faith that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who died as a sacrifice for sins and then rose again on the third day, then you can be just as confident in your faith in the Scriptures because the same Jesus is the one who validated those Scriptures as being from God himself. It's true that it takes faith to believe the words of Scripture are inspired by God, but it's not a blind faith. It's a faith built upon the very person and work of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is who he said he was, then the word of God is what it claims to be. So while we were not eyewitnesses, we get to feast upon the glories of Christ as we read of him in the Scriptures that he himself inspired and validated. Just take a moment and think about that. I said this last week, but beloved, we can never take this treasure for granted. We have the verified words of the Holy God here in our hands, and we can read it, and we can study it, and we can meditate upon it, and we can know it, and we must. We must never take for granted what God has given to us in the Scriptures. So having understood then how it is that God revealed himself to us in the Son, the author of Hebrews goes back to his primary argument of, of the superiority of the Son. And he's going to help us now to pick up that magnifying glass and look at the person of Christ and to go beyond just a surface-level understanding of the intricacies of Christ. What he's going to give us this morning are, are seven descriptions of the Son's superiority. Seven descriptions of the Son's superiority. Now, we won't make it through all seven. We'll save some for next week. But we'll get through five of these descriptions today. The first description explaining why the Son is superior is that he is heir. He is heir. Look back at the text, verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now the author draws upon what would be familiar cultural language of a, a father passing down his inheritance to his firstborn son. They would have understood that idea, but understand that there's more going on here than just a cultural illustration of the father handing down all things to the son. He's actually referring to a specific messianic psalm 
just so happens to be the psalm we read this morning. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, it says this, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Understand that when the author speaks of the son here being the heir of all things, he has in mind a very specific son. That is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, 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 the one the psalmist speaks of here in Psalm 2. It is this son, the son who would go on to be king. And we know that Jesus understood himself as, as having received this kind of authority because after his resurrection, just before he's going to ascend to the Father in Matthew 28, what does he say? Verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time diving into the depths of this particular phrase because we will see it later in Hebrews again. But the point here is that Jesus is the very Son of God who inherits lordship and ownership over the entire universe and is the ultimate ruler of all. He reigns even now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but one day he will set up an earthly rule on this planet in the millennial kingdom, followed then by his rule in the eternal kingdom. Not one of the prophets could ever attain to this status. It was reserved for the Son and the Son alone. But there's something even more incredible about this inheritance revealed elsewhere in the New Testament. Because the Bible says, as those who are Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, that you too will join in receiving this inheritance. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Understand this amazing reality. Jesus Christ, by his, his own blood, his sacrificial life and death, has redeemed a people for himself that will not only dwell with him forever, but join him in the reception of this great eternal inheritance. Listen to what MacArthur says here. He says, when we enter into his eternal kingdom, we will jointly possess all that he possesses. We will not be joint Christ or joint lords, but we will be joint heirs. Just think of that. Don't get confused. Jesus will be God. He will be ruler. But we get to join in the reception of this inheritance. He, the owner of all things, brings us into himself, and we share in that. Obviously, he is superior to every prophet who's ever come before him. Secondly, there's another description here of why the Son is so superior. Description number two, he is creator. He is creator. Back to verse 2. In these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now we see that all of creation is not only the Son's by inheritance, but it is doubly his because he is the creator. 
the Son is credited here as being the all-powerful creator who has made everything, literally everything that exists. This is a clear reference to the fact that this Son is no mere man, but he is God, God in human flesh. In order for him to be the creator, it means that he had to precede the creation. So this is a claim to the fact that the Son is eternal. In addition to that, if he is the creator, then he must possess all power, which means that he is omnipotent. In addition to that, all of the Jews hearing this would have been just as familiar, if not more so, with the opening words of the very first book of the Bible as we are today. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if the author is saying that the Son has created all things, what is he saying? The Son is God. It is a claim to the divinity of the Son. We understand from Scripture that all three persons of the Trinity were involved in some way with creation, but the Son is routinely described as the direct agent of creation. We see this in other places like John 1, in that beautiful introduction, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Or perhaps even more familiar is Colossians 1.16. I hope it's more familiar as we went through it together. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Here in Colossians, Paul emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the creator of far more than just the physical earth, the, the dirt and the rocks of, of earth, but he's the creator of all things that are visible and invisible. In a similar way, the author of Hebrews hints at this by the word that he chooses for the word translated as world. The word world here in Greek is actually the word for the ages. He's created the ages. It's, it's more comprehensive than just the world. He's not just saying this physical planet, but all of creation. Again, to quote MacArthur, he says, Jesus Christ is responsible not only for the physical earth, he's also responsible for creating time, space, energy, and matter. Christ created the whole universe and everything that makes it function, and he did it without effort. Everything in existence in both heaven, earth, and our entire universe was created by this sun. Think about the magnitude of that statement for a moment. The more scientists uncover about the intricacies of our universe, the more creation becomes the only rational explanation for our existence. The theory of evolution was always far-fetched to those who were honest thinkers, but it continually becomes less tenable with every new discovery that scientists make about our universe. Let me give you an example. I did some, some very basic research this week on the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, and, and what's interesting is that when you, when you Google the size of the Milky Way galaxy, you find opinions that vary widely depending on the year in which the article was written. It seems that every single year, literally 18, 19, 20, 21, they come up with a vastly different opinion as our, our tools grow that allow us to look deeper into the heavens. We see that there's more there. The further we look, the more we find. 
But the most current estimate that I could find for the size of our galaxy was in an, in an article by a man named Ken Croswell, and he cites a recent study that estimates that our galaxy is 1.9 million light years in diameter. Now, if you're like me, that was like, it bounces off. I, don't, I, don't, I can't comprehend that. So let me, let me try to help a little bit. How far is a light year? A light year is estimated to be about 6 trillion miles. One light year, 6 trillion miles. And this estimate, if it's correct, says that our, our galaxy is 1.9 million of those 6 trillion miles. That's just our galaxy. Scientists continue to look for galaxies with these high-powered telescopes, and and right now the best estimates, which will likely change, are that we have about 200 billion galaxies in the universe. 200, not million, billion galaxies. And ours is 1.9 million. Good mercy. Think about Psalm 19.1. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Listen, when David wrote those words, it was absolutely true. As he stood and he looked up at the heavens with just the naked eye, he could tell the heavens are literally declaring the glory of God. But what's amazing to me, what's, what's really captured my attention this week is that when David wrote those words, God, who inspired those words, understood that one day he would allow us to progress to a point that we could see far beyond what the naked eye could see. And that even then, we would still be saying, with all of our advancements, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. As far as we can go in our advancements, his, his, his creation goes even further. It's like with every new invention of a new telescope, there's only a new chorus added to the song of his glory. And Hebrews says, all of this is to be attributed to the Son. He created all things, all things. That's just one simple illustration. Forget the complexities of the human body or the the earth's seasons and so on and so forth. We could go on and on. The point that I want you to see is that he's not only heir of all things, but he's creator of all things, and therefore he's exalted not only above the prophets, but above every being that's ever existed. His superiority cannot be overstated, is the point. But we're not done. There are more descriptions of this glorious son. Description number three and four really go together as a package, but we'll look at them separately. Description three is that he is God's glory displayed. He is God's glory displayed. Looking back at chapter one, verse three, and he is the radiance of, of his glory. I love that phrase. He is the radiance of his glory. You know, when it comes to understanding the Father, one of the greatest hurdles that we have is that no one can look on the Father and live. You remember Exodus 33, Moses says there, beginning of verse 18, I pray you show me your glory. And God says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. 
Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Understand, we're, we're completely cut off from access to seeing the glory of God. Moses here, who is perhaps the godliest man, uh, certainly of that day, perhaps of all days except for Christ, here he is, can only see the back of God. What are we to do? If we're incapable and unable as sinners to be in the presence of God and to behold his glory and to look upon his face, and yet that is our desire and our need is to be with him for eternity, what are we to do? The author of Hebrews says, we have been allowed to see the glory of the Father in the person of the Son. This word glory is really used, the Greek word is used just like the Hebrew word, and Kittle defines it this way. He says, in relation to God, it denotes that which makes God impressive. That which makes him impressive. So how are we to see the glory of God manifest? Well, we look at the sun. Richard Phillips says it this way. He says, hot and brilliant as the sun is in the, universe, or in the heavens, we would never see it or feel its warmth without the radiating beams that come to the earth. So it is with God and his son, who is the radiance of his glory. Without the sun, we remain in the dark regarding the glory of God. But with the sun, we have an ideal, indeed a perfect revelation of God. Because Jesus is one with the Father, when he takes on flesh and dwells among men, we see the glory of the Father in the Son. In his earthly ministry, Jesus perfectly displayed the character of the Father, and therefore through him the glory of God was on display in living color. Listen to how the Apostle John describes this wonderful truth in John 1, further down from where we read earlier. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that is John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And then verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. We see the Father in the Son. Jesus' every action, every reaction, every word, every deed radiated the glory of of God, not to mention the transfiguration in which he peels back the curtain momentarily and shows the brilliance of his glory. But even in that veiled sense in his humanity, the glory of God was on display. But beyond that, we see a fourth description that not only did he radiate God's glory, but Jesus is God's nature incarnate. He's God's nature incarnate. Look back there at verse 3 again of chapter 1. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Of his nature. Now the Greek word here for representation means a mark or a stamp. Here's a definition. 
It's a mark that is engraved, etched, branded, cut, or imprinted. So it's translated as mark or stamp. It was often used to refer to a seal as that seal was pressed down into hot wax and the wax took on the form of the seal. It was also used of, of making coins. When, when a certain impression was put onto to hot metal, that metal then takes on the form of that, that impression, just like a, a quarter in your pocket. That's the idea here. The sun then is said to be an exact representation or stamp of God's nature. And the word nature here can also be translated as essence, the very essence of the being of God. Now, we have to be very careful as we interpret what is being said here and be clear that, of what he's not saying because we can get into some dangerous ground uh, the, theologically if we misunderstand. Understand the author is not saying that there was a time in which Jesus did not possess these things and the Father came along and stamped them into him. That actually would be heresy. Because God can, can never not be God and still be God. To be God, Jesus has to always have been God. And so this is an illustration, and like any human illustration, it has its limits. Here's the point that the author is making. He's saying just in the way that that, that hot wax or metal takes on the exact image that is, is pressed into it, in the same way, the nature of Jesus is identical to the nature of the Father. That's the point. They are the same. You look at the Son, you see the Father. You look at the Father, you see the Son because they share the same divine nature or the same divine essence. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. The point of both of those statements, what we read in Hebrews and what we read in Colossians, is that Jesus was not simply like God, but he shares the divine nature with the Father while still being a unique person. The Father, Son, and Spirit are each unique persons and yet one because they share the same divine nature or essence. And this is the reason that we see the glory of the Father in the Son. It is because the Son himself is fully God. The revelation that comes through the Son is exceedingly superior to that of the prophets because in the Son we have Emmanuel, God with us. The Son then is God's final revelation because in the Son we see God. Now remember last week I stated that both the Old Testament and New Testament are equally inspired by God. This is not to say that that somehow the Old Testament is, is done away with. We read Jesus' own words that that is not the case. The point here is that the Son is being exalted as the final, the complete revelation of God because in the Son we have God in flesh. That brings us then to a fifth description of Christ this morning. He is sustainer. He is sustainer. Verse 3 again he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Holds all things by the word of his power. With this statement, the author reveals that not only is the Son the creator of all that exists, as he said earlier, he's the sustainer of all that exists. What this means is that God did not speak the world into existence and sort of set it in motion and then step away. Instead, Jesus, as the agent of creation, continues 
moment by moment, day in and day out, to sustain creation. Scientists have discovered certain undeniable facts in creation that make up the very framework of how life exists on earth. For example, we've discovered and can define the law of gravity. It's been verifiably proven that all objects exert a definable gravitational pull on one another depending upon their mass and their distance between other objects. Science can explain how many things in creation work, and they can explain the effects of those creations, but what science is powerless to explain is why. The Bible says it's because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, continually sustains the universe so that it functions consistently in accordance with his divine design. Why does the earth continue to spin at such a consistent rate, at such a consistent angle around the sun, day by day, year after year? Why does your heart continue to pump blood through your body in this moment? Why, when you breathe in air, is your lungs, or do they take that air and and spread that oxygen into your bloodstream? As I speak to you now, why do your eardrums receive the the sound waves coming from these speakers and then interpret those sound waves into words and then your brain attach those words to meaning so that you understand? Why does that continue to happen? You see, science can explain that that does happen. It can even explain how it happens. But in order to understand why it happens, you need theology. You need revelation. You need God to explain to us this is why it happens this way over and over again. The implication here is that Jesus as the sustainer, if he for even a moment suspended his sustaining power on this universe, it would unravel in a moment. It stays together because he said so and continues to say so. Again, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is to say, if it weren't for him, all things would cease to hold together. Now let's connect this truth to the context that the author is explaining. The son through whom God gave his final revelation is the very one who continually sustains every molecule of the universe. The obvious conclusion then is that he is superior to any other messenger in existence. Not just the prophets, but superior to all. But that brings up an interesting question. How exactly does the Son accomplish this sustaining work of creation? Is he in heaven with with, with outstretched arms, straining, just barely keeping things together as as beams of sweat start to, to, to show on his brow? No, the author explains it this way. Here's how he does it. By the word of his power. By the word of his power. The universe with all its complexities and grandeur is held together and sustained simply by his word. Remember, this is how creation began in the first place. Genesis 1, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Each time God creates something new in Genesis, it happens this way. God speaks, and it happens. He speaks, and it happens. Similarly, then, the earth continues to be sustained because of the Father's or the Son's word. The same Son of God who brought the world into existence through his word maintains its existence through his word. It's not a hardship for him. His muscles are not strained. His mental capacity is not stretched. His power is not depleted. He simply speaks and the created order obeys and it will continue to obey until he says, stop. But there's another implica- implication of the sustaining power of the sun that's been captivating my attention this week. Because you see, when the sun was on earth as a man, he was still God, he still had a divine nature, and in his divinity was still performing this work of sustaining the world around him. That means that he was sustaining the heartbeat of Judas, He was staining the life of every Pharisee and Roman who would persecute him. He was sustaining the molecules that made up the wood that would be crafted into his cross. The nails that were formed and held him to that cross kept their form because they were obeying the laws that he himself had put in place. The thorns that would be twisted into the torturous crown and placed upon his head as, a, as a, a form of torture and mockery were sustained by the nutrients in the ground that God had made. And the voices in the crowd that cried for his crucifixion found utterance because of the air that he had provided to fill their lungs. And yet to the cross he went. The perfect God-man who had never committed a single sin went with resolute joy to the cross on purpose so that he might be the perfect sacrifice for sin. So that even some of those in that crowd on that day that were mocking him as he hung upon the cross might receive eternal life. And some of you may be sitting here this morning still with hardened hearts of disbelief and rebellion against God. The Bible says that every single one of us have sinned against God and we are guilty before God and worthy and deserving of his eternal punishment for our sin. If you're not in Christ, the Bible says this morning that your current relationship to God is as a rebel who deserves his just punishment and wrath. And yet even now, he graciously sustains you. You breathe in his air. He has seen fit to cause your heart to beat over and over again, even this morning as you sit listening to this message. Why? Why does he allow those who do not believe in him, more than that, who go and actively sin against him, to remain alive? Well, friend, it's because he's a God of grace and mercy. You see, in him... The author of Hebrews says we have the the character of God on display. And in that visible display, what have we found? We have found that God is a God who delights in saving sinners by grace. 
And he came proclaiming that for anyone who would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone as their only hope of salvation, they indeed would be saved and receive eternal life forever with him. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that while you, you sit here under his judgment, guilty before him, if even now you will humble yourself and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus revealed over and over again in his person, sealing it with his resurrection, that the Father had accepted his sacrifice. Friend, don't waste another day in rebellion against this good God who we've seen on the pages of Scripture today. But for those of us in Christ, it's important that we too take a moment to respond to these wonderful truths that we've heard. What do we take away from this glorious Christ that we have beheld together? Well, first of all, just three things that I'd like to mention. One, marvel at the Son. Marvel at the Son. For some of you here, you genuinely love the Lord Jesus Christ and you love His Word, but if you're honest, as of late, you've not been as diligent as you should be in your thoughts towards Him. Perhaps you've been a Christian for some time and lately the cares and the worries of the world have, have drowned out your thoughts of Christ and His Word, stolen your attention. Let me encourage you today to focus your attention back on the crown jewel the Son Himself. We're not to live our lives as if Jesus is an addition to our life. Jesus is the, the lens through which we see all of life. He's the, the purpose and the motivation for our life. He should affect everything about our daily lives. When's the last time that you truly meditated upon the person of Jesus Christ? I mean, took out the microscope mentally and just really dwelt upon the riches of the person of Jesus. I want to encourage you this week to take these first five descriptions and find some time and just mentally take them apart in your mind. Think through the implications of the fact that he is the heir and the creator of all. That in him we see the glory of the Father and the nature of the Father and that he is even now sustaining you. Think on the Son of God in these ways. And as you do that, I guarantee you, if you're a Christian, it will have a natural effect. And that leads us to a second thing. We must worship the Son. Worship the Son. Give glory to the Son. Call out to Him in prayer. Exalt Him and worship Him for the truth that come to mind as you meditate upon the riches of Christ. Sing to Him. And sing to Him not out of routine or because you're captured by the tune of the song, but because He's worthy to be praised, because you're captured by the person of the Son. The Christian sings because he cannot help but sing, because his Savior is too great not to receive the worship due his name. How much of your prayer time is devoted to giving glory to God for who he is? Worship him in your prayers of adoration. Worship him with your singing. Worship him through your obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. May we worship him by committing to live holy lives in, a, in conformity more and more by the power of the Spirit to the Word. And may that lead us to one final obvious response. Proclaim the Son. Proclaim the Son. Are you embarrassed or shy to talk to other people about Jesus? 
After studying who he is again this morning, we, we should be reminded that there's no other person or being in the universe that's more worthy of our conversation. There's no other person that should more easily come up in conversation. Speak of him in your home. Speak of him with your, your spouse in your marriage. Speak of him to your children. Speak of him with your closest friends. And speak of him to the lost that God brings into your life. Proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself in the Son and now has called us to go and share the glories of the Son in the gospel with others, that they may too come to behold the Son in the way that we have. Just how often is Jesus the topic of your conversation? Let us not neglect so great a Son, so great a Savior. He is truly superior to all. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are convicted again as we marvel at your glories. You are the glorious Christ, exalted above all. These are truths that we know, many of us, and yet we confess that far too often they become routine. They become old hat, they become assumed instead of fodder for meditation and discussion. Lord Jesus, may we never fall into the trap of thinking that we've exhausted the depths of the intricacies of who you are. We, we always have more to learn as we behold you over and over again in the scriptures. God, help us to have an unwavering confidence in the scriptures because Jesus himself testified to these things as being the true word of God. We pray that you would be our meditation, that you would even now be our song, and that we would be diligent and bold in sharing you with the world. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.